um, Albert MacDonald, who is preacher, pastor over in North Belfast Christian Fellowship. So Albert's going to share with us this morning um, a little bit about what they're doing there, a little bit about yourself, and also he's going to read the word and preach on that as well. So um, welcome, Albert. Just let me just wipe this down. Thank you, uh, Adele. Uh, good morning, everyone. On uh, behalf of North Belfast Christian Fellowship, uh, just let us bring, bring our greetings to you and uh, be assured of our continued uh, prayers for the work here in Colin Glen Christian uh, Fellowship. As Adele says, I want to share uh, a little bit about my life. Uh, it's not my story. It's, it's God's story. It's, it's a work of, of grace uh, that God has done and still does in lives today. By way of introduction, I, I want to read from, from God's Word. Uh, I want to read from Acts of the Apostles, chapter 4. Uh, th- this is a fairly well-known story, and, and leading up to the part that I'm, I'm going to read, uh, I'm sure you're familiar with it in some aspect. Peter and John are heading down to the temple uh, to pray, and as they're heading into uh, the temple, there's a man sitting outside and he is crippled and he is uh, begging for money. And of course, Peter makes a great statement to him uh, when he says, Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. So our reading is from Acts 4 and we're breaking into it. at at verse 7. The authorities of that day, uh, the religious hierarchy, uh, have called Peter and John together uh, to question. And in verse 7, it says that they had Peter and John brought before them and they began to question them. By what power and in what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how was he healed, then know this, you and all of the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men whereby you must be saved. This is a story of a paralyzed man, a man who was absolutely helpless in his own strength to do anything about his condition. And one day he encountered the risen Christ through the testimony of of Peter and John. And that's what I want to do uh, this morning. I want to relate to you uh, God's story in in my life. Can I say from the very beginning, uh, it is not my purpose to cause offence 
in, in anything that I, I say this morning, but in everything and in all things to give God uh, the glory. I was brought up in a little street uh, on the Ormer Road, a little street called Hatfield Street, down in, in the, the Lormer, uh, Lower Ormo uh, area. We lived about five houses from the, the bottom of the street and, and the river lagging. And uh, looking back, I can probably say I had a great privilege that I was brought up in a, a Christian home. At the time, it didn't seem that way. My, my mom and dad were, were brethren folk. We were sent along to uh, the church and Sunday school uh, three times on a Sunday and maybe twice uh, through the week. In fact, as a little boy, it just seemed to be that I was more at church than I was out, out kicking a football, which is all I ever uh, wanted uh, to do. So it was well known in, in the area that we were a good living family, and I never liked that, and I still don't like uh, that, that term. But that's how we were viewed, that we were good living, that we were Christians, and therefore that we, we didn't do anything wrong. And that was the furthest thing from, from my head as a little boy. 1969, like many uh, families in and around Belfast, we had to move uh, from our home, and we moved to uh, a housing estate uh, in Belfast. A number of things happened when, when we moved home. I began to realize that nobody in my new surroundings knew that my mum and dad were Christians and therefore I was expected to behave uh, in a way that, that uh, my, my parents would expect of me. And uh, as a little boy of probably about 12, uh, one Friday night I was introduced to, to alcohol. Like many young people in those days living in a housing estate, uh, got involved with gangs and, and other such things. And I remember a, a little boy standing one Friday night, and one of the older guys uh, handed me a little, little bottle of beer, a little stumpy bottle of, of harp. And I remember part of my mind saying, how do I turn this down and keep face? And what would my father say if, if he seen me with a, a bottle of beer in my hand? And as I stood there that night, before I even tasted what was in that bottle, something happened. And in hindsight, looking back at it, I, I, I in part understand what it was. That as I stood there in a crowd of maybe about 30 or 40 fellas, that I felt normal. Without even drinking the, the, the beer, it made me fit in. It made me one of the guys. And that was something that I was to learn later on, that alcohol was to become something that I used in life to feel normal, to normalize. Got involved. I don't want to go into it uh, this morning and, and a lot of things that I, I now regret. I uh, met a, a young girl called Hazel. She's now my wife today. I keep forgetting to, to put that bit in. We're still together by God's grace. And... Uh, she had, she had somewhat of a control in my life and, and tried to keep me on the straight and narrow. We were married in 1980, and on the eve of our wedding, uh, her, her mother called her into the, the living room and suggested that she, she cancels the wedding on the eve uh, of, of the big wedding day. And she said to her daughter that this guy is no good. He is going to bring heartache. He's going to bring trouble. Uh, to your life and you'd be better making the decision now rather than later. Uh, she didn't take her mother's advice. We were married and for the first year of married life it was quite happy. Uh, 
maybe, maybe even normal. Uh, she tried to fulfill her uh, wish to her mother that she would control me, that she would watch out for me. And that lasted for a very short space of time. The little girl that I stood uh, before a church and professed to love and professed to honor and, and to keep, I began to hate. And people say that's a very strong word, but it's the absolute truth because she became the obstacle uh, between me and my God. Not the God of this Bible, but the, the, the God of, of alcohol. And I began to hate her and resented her for her trying to uh, spoil my fun. It came to head uh, one night when I, I tried to kill her. I was out of my head with, with alcohol and I woke up about three or four in the morning. The bedroom was racked. The bed was lying over on its side. The furniture was smashed. And uh, I had this little girl, lovely, big brown eyes, long, beautiful hair. And, and I was choking her to death. And I, I wanted her out of my life. It, it wasn't just a, a casual thing. It was something that I just had this, this hatred that if, if I get rid of her, I would be free to do what, whatever I, I wanted. Somehow or another, that, that wee girl stuck with me. Uh, she she done her best. But I don't want to stand here this morning and tell you stories about, about alcohol. If you want to hear stories about alcohol, go, go into any bar on this road and people will tell you stories. I, I don't want to do that this morning. I, I want to tell you about Jesus. I, I want, to, want to bring you to a place in my life where, by God's grace, he, he, he took hold of me and, and, and spoke in, into my life. I suppose it... it it all began when I, I had a friend uh, who, who died of leukemia, and uh, he was a, a very godly man. He, he was an elder in, in a local church. He was also uh, an accountant uh, for a company that I'd worked for, and he, he passed away with leukemia. And I want to tell you a story of, of something that happened in my life that was to start a process of change. And I, I, I often say this when I'm sharing testimony. Uh, I, I want to bring you the questions that were put to me that particular day. And I want to ask you three questions. So I'm, I'm giving you a warning. Uh, you're on camera. You may be sitting in another room, so you don't have to put your hand up or answer out loud. But I want you to answer them in, in your own heart uh, th this morning. Uh, I went along to the funeral on a Saturday morning. I, I went late in order that I didn't have to go into the church uh, because I was still under the effects of, of alcohol from the night before. I listened to the service and then I come home. Uh, my wife said to me, why did you not go to the graveyard? Why did you not go and pay your respects? And I said, that, that's for family, that's not for, for me. I, I, I went to the church, I don't need to go. And she kind of looked at the clock and she says, it's, it's 12 o'clock and she says, you, you can't go. She says, one morning without a drink. She says, the reason you didn't go to the graveyard is, she says, because you, you have a drink in the house. She was right. I took the drink and I went out and I went to the graveyard. And as I say, this was the start of a change in my life. There was a man speaking that day, a man by the name of George Bates. I'd never heard of him in my life. I didn't know who he was. And he was to ask the first question that, that spoke to me, that shocked me, that, that stopped me in my tracks almost. He was talking about this man, Ronnie Bain, who had died and 
how he had went into the presence of, of God. And he'd done an amazing thing. He was speaking to an audience of maybe about 100 people around the open grave. Because I'd came late, I had arrived behind him, and therefore I was standing on my own. And George Bates turned and he faced me and he looked at me, ignoring the hundred people in front of him. And I'd never met him in my life and, and he never knew me. And he pointed his finger at me and he asked me this question. He says, what are you going to say when you stand before Jesus Christ in eternity? What are you going to say when you stand before Jesus Christ in eternity. I remember my mind began to race. I began to think my mum and dad were good living. I went to Sunday school. I, I had a whole stack of prizes for, for scripture reading and attendance. And I'll tell God all of these great things. Uh, and you know, they were just like going out like light switches in, in my head. He stood and pointed at me what seemed like for an eternity. One of the amazing things when I met that man some years later, I, I spoke to him about that particular day and he remembered it. And he, he related to me a, a story that he had been up all night. He, he hadn't slept. He'd been praying that God would give him someone to speak to at the grave side. He said as he looked around, he, he knew most of the people. He knew we Mrs. So-and-so, and he knew Mr. so and he knew them all. But there wasn't this person for him to speak to. Five minutes into his uh, delivery at the graveside, this guy came walking down the grave and he said to me that God, the Holy Spirit, said, there's the man. I want you to speak to him. He said, so I ignored everybody else and he turned and I spoke to you. And I remember thinking that he was very rude turning his back on all of these people. He was certainly very rude for pointing his finger at me. And he asked me, what did you think at that time? And I, I says, I was counting. I was counting the seconds until I went over and hit you a smack in the mouth. Because what right had you got to point your finger and ask me a question such as that? I said, the problem was I didn't know what I was going to say to God. More to the point, I didn't know what God was going to say to me. What are you going to say when you stand before Jesus Christ in eternity? Later that day... Uh, I went down to the off-license. I bought a dozen tins of, of Smithies. I drank 11 of them and I put the empty tins in the boot of my car. My wife arrived home uh, about 5 o'clock and, and I rushed and cracked open a tin and sat it down. And she came in and she says, I thought you would have given that a miss for today. And of course, pre-arranged, pre-rehearsed, I says, there's no pleasing you. I says, one, one tin of beer and you're still nagging. One tin of beer and you, you, there's, no, there's no pleasing you. And I said, I'm not listening to this, I'm away. And I took my little daughter and I got in the car and away I went. Dozens of times I, I drove well under the influence of drink. I crashed my car, I put it through a hedge, I near killed my, my, my girls in it one night with the car almost coped onto its side. I was just out of control. There was, there was, there was no limits in my life. I took my daughter and I set off walking around the Giants Ring, just at Shaw's Bridge. And the next two questions were to come from my little girl. She was probably aged about nine or ten. As we set off, I'd drink inside the coat uh, that I was wearing. 
and I was drinking as we walked around the, the giant's ring. And she asked me what happened to Ronnie. And I said, what, what do you mean, love? And she says, what happened to him when he died? Innocent question coming from a little girl. And I pointed away across the giant's ring to a cemetery at Billy Lesson. And I says, he's, he's buried over there, love. And she said, but what happened to him? And I got down on my knee and I pointed across. I says, love, do you see the big, big tree? And if you just look to the left of it, you'll see all, all the ground. I, I says, that's where, he, that's where he is. She says, but where is he now? And the penny dropped. And I realized what she was asking. And it's amazing how we can be all of a sudden seemingly so respectful. And I took the drink and I put it behind my back <laughs> as if I was trying to hide something. And I says, love, I want you to listen to me very, very clearly. I says, when Ronnie was a young man, he, he realized he was a sinner. He realized that his sin separated him from God. And as a young man, around about 18, he asked Jesus Christ into his life to forgive his sins, to cleanse him from all unrighteousness. And I says, so today, love, Ronnie's with Jesus. And I felt quite proud. You see, there was, there was nothing wrong with what I knew. The problem with was with how I applied it. The second question came from that little girl and it, it, it shook me. It shook me to the core. She looked up at me and she said, Daddy, are you going to go to heaven someday? Second question. First question, what are you going to say when you stand before Jesus Christ in eternity? Second question, are you going to heaven? There's no blathering it this morning. There's no waffling around it. People turn around and go, well, you can't be sure. The word of God says, no, we can't be sure. That there is salvation, that there is forgiveness, that there is restoration. I started to cry. This, this guy who wasn't feared of anything, this guy who lived his life how he wanted to live it, and I was confronted with the truth. And I took the drink and, and I threw it over a wall. And I turned to walk away and my little girl didn't know what was going on, but she had a hold of my coat. And she pulled it back and she asked me the third question that day that was to start this process of, of change in my life. And again, it was the simplicity and the innocence of this little girl she pulled my coat and she said, Daddy, where are you going? Where are you going? And I remember shaking my head and then saying, going, I don't know. I do not know. And I walked back the car. Of course, she was like, why are we going back? We've only just arrived. But God was speaking into my life. And I got back and went into the car. I bought a, a carry-out from the off-license to do me that night. And I bought another one to hold on to till tomorrow morning. And I went up into my bedroom and I, I closed the door. And I done my best to pray. And, and I prayed a prayer that I'd, I'd prayed hundreds of times. God, will you take away the alcohol? And it was empty. There was, there was nothing. It was dead. And I remember saying, God, you see, you, 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 you don't hear my prayer. You don't hear what I'm saying. 
and I felt absolutely desperate. And I wanted to die. Underneath my pillow, I'd slept for 11 years with a 9mm pistol. I fell asleep every night with my hand resting on it. And I went and I took that pistol from under the pillow and I put a bullet into the chamber of the gun. Very heavily intoxicated, I put the gun to the side of my head. And I just thought, one squeeze and I'm free. And then that question came booming back into the room, Albert. What are you going to say when you stand before a holy God? Where are you going? I remember falling off the bed onto my knees and I cried and I cried and I cried. And I said, God, this has got nothing to do with alcohol. This has got to do with sin. And I began to realize that I'd got this completely wrong. I, I wanted God to come and take away a substance when the, the real issue was sin. The real issue was my separation from, from God. There was no fancy prayer that night. There was, there was no negotiating. There was, there was no rehearsal of nice words. I simply says, God help me. God help me. I woke up the next morning. I didn't, didn't drink. My wife came to me and about 12 o'clock and she says, are you okay? And I says, yeah. I says, why do you ask? She says, it's 12 o'clock. And she says, you haven't had a drink yet. And I, I, I kicked off this crazy statement. I said, but it's Sunday. And then I thought, <laughs> that never made any difference before. Shows you how quick you can come self-righteous. And I didn't drink for a month or two and things seemed to be going well. And then we had a, a death in the family. There was a little, little baby girl, a few months old, and she, she passed away. And I remember going into the off-license and, and thinking, you know, one drink. Just, just tonight, just tonight. But I drank the next night, and I drank the next night, and I drank the next night. And two years later, the, the marriage was in a complete mess. And we went away on holiday, 1995. First night of the holiday, my wife came and says, Albert, I want us to enjoy the holiday, but I, I want to get something off my chest. And I said, go ahead. And she says, when, when we return home, she says, will, will you allow me to make an appointment to see the doctor or will you go with me to see a psychiatrist? And I remember feeling and saying to her, do you think I'm cuckoo? Do you think I'm daft? And she looked at me and she says, Albert, there's something wrong with you. There's something wrong. And deep down I knew that wee girl was right. I can't remember coming home from that holiday. I can't remember being on an aeroplane. The last I recall was standing in a bar that, that night somewhere in Spain. And then as I drove down by Glengormley thinking, how did I get here? Can't remember being at an airport. Can't remember boarding a plane. Can't remember anything. That, that day, that morning, 
I, I realized that our marriage was finished. It was, it was over. Sixteen years. Three beautiful daughters. And there it was. Sunday morning, I decided that I would go to church. And my wife just shrugged her shoulders, big deal. I went round into a wee church and, and carried off and I hadn't drank from, from Friday and I noticed that I was shaking badly. Two little girls in front of me thought this was hilarious. They kept nudging each other and, and looking round and, and giggling. I noticed that the sweat started to drip down off my nose. At that stage my, my arms were convulsing and I, I was holding on to them violently to stop them shaking. And then I looked down and realized that my trousers were wet through. And I just wanted to run. And I got up and I, I ran from that church. And I thank God today that there was a, a friend, a man, and he came out after me and I could hear him running to catch up with me. And I, I just knew all, all I needed was a drink. One, one drink, I'll sort this one drink and you'll be okay. But I, I knew my next drink would would kill me, it would never, never recover. And he says, give me your keys, you're in no fit state to drive a car. And he brought me round home and I remember standing in my hall trying to change my trousers. My trousers were down round my, my knees. And I looked over at our living room door and the door was open about six inches and there was three little heads at the door looking through at their dad, their hero, unable even to take his trousers off. And I just wanted to die, just wanted out of this life. More than anything. The guy who brought me round, he, he said to my wife Hazelie, he says, look, look at him, he, he needs help. She very deliberately took a tea towel and she dried her hands. And she walked to the kitchen door and, and she pointed and she says, do you want to help that? Do you really want to help that? And the guy says, yes, he, he needs help. I'm going to take him to hospital. And she says, I'll tell you what to do. She says, take him down the road. And she says, when you come to the first bus stop, she says, stop and get him out of the car. And she says, when the bus comes, she says, push him under it. He says, he's not worth it. And she turned around and began to dry the dishes. And I realized at that time that it was over. My home was gone. My wife was gone. My kids were gone. The guy put me in the car and he, he, he started to drive me to the, the Royal Victoria Hospital. I haven't got time this morning to, to go into the whole story, but God and his amazing grace had allowed me to get involved or to meet a, an organization called Staris. The guy asked me one night, he says, Albert, would you be part of a panel to come and talk to about 1,600 young people called an attitude to alcohol? And, and, and just, you just have to share, you don't, you know, he says, it's, it's, you don't have to, to preach, just, just share about the, the dangers. And I went that night and I met a guy called Arthur Williams. And he came to me after and he, he, he says, do, do you know why I'm here tonight? And I remember thinking, man, I don't know and I don't particularly care because I'm out of here. 
And he says, I'm here because God sent me to speak to you. Never met the man in my life. And I remember thinking, mate, you might be sober, but you're cuckoo. You're, you're taking something. You're, you must be working tablets or something. And you don't come up to a complete stranger and say, God sent me to speak to you. But that is exactly what God had done. And as a result, I'd, I went down to this place. He said to me, he says, we've got this centre. We're trying to do it up. It's a place called Ballyarch Castle in Armagh. He says, we're trying to, to, to do it up to refurbish it and make it into a, a, a residential unit to deal with, with addiction. And I went down and looked at it, and it was a dump. <laughs> the ceilings were falling down, the floors were falling in, and I remember thinking, this guy must think I come up a river in a bubble or something. You know, I'm not getting involved in this. I'm not, you know. By the way, can I just say something? I wasn't down and out. I don't know what kind of picture that you get in your mind of where I was. I was managing director of a business in Belfast. I was travelling to Germany, to Switzerland, to America. Had it made. Lovely BMW car, changed every two years. You would have looked at me going down the Ormer Road most mornings and you would have said, there's a guy's got it. He's made it. Best of suits, best of cars. But what they didn't see at half seven in the morning was a tin of beer or a half bottle of wine stuck between my legs just to get going for the day. Appearances can be so deceiving. So on the way to the Royal Victoria Hospital, he, he says, I'm going to take you to that place. And he, he turned around and he took me to Armagh. The place wasn't even opened. It wasn't due to open until September 95, and this was August. Never forget what the big guy, Charles U. Pritchard, said to me sometime later. I said, Charles, why did you bring me in? Because I didn't meet any of their criteria. I wasn't detoxed. You, you knew that I was going to be falling apart for the next five days. I never forget his words. It, it's words that I believe that every church should, should take note of. He said, I looked out the window and I saw a need. I looked out the window and I saw a need. There are many people who, who look out and they, they see nothing. They don't see the need of the community. They don't see the need of, of their friends and their family. I was able to phone a, a local doctor and, and he, he gave me some medication to try and hold me together for a few days. And, Eventually, Big Charles came to speak to me one day. He says, Albert, you want to go walk? And I was like, whatever. Beautiful August day, sun was shining. And as we walked along, he said, you know, Albert, God, and he got no more. And I just said, whoa, whoa, stop. <laughs> Not going there. Big man, he was, I don't know what he, six foot three or something. I'm not. He, he just tarred over me and he smiled. And I says, you see, Charles, I know what you're going to do. You're, you're going to start telling me about God. I says, I almost guarantee you've got a wee Bible in your pocket, probably a, a, a wee New Testament Psalms, probably from the Gideons. That's what you normally have. He never spoke. He just smiled. I says, you see, Charles, here's my problem. From the book of Genesis to the book of Revelation and everything in between, I believe it to be true. I says, you're going to tell me that there's a God in heaven. You're going to tell me that he sent his only begotten son into the world to go to a cross, to die in my stead, to pay my penalty. 
I says, I know all that. I believe all that. But I says, it doesn't change me. I am what I am. And I'm going to live and I'm going to die a drunk. And I says, I appreciate you giving me a bed. I appreciate you putting me up. I said, but I don't understand. I've had every chance, more chances than anybody else that I know. And I do not understand. And he went to speak and I put my hand up and I says, please, Charles. I says, just leave it. I do not understand why I am what I am and why I do what I do. And I walked away from that big guy that day and later that night I went to bed and I couldn't sleep. And there was a Bible sitting and for an hour or two there was this battle. Why don't you pick it up? Why don't you read it? And what? Promise your wife that you've changed only to let her down again, only to hurt her even more. Just leave it. Do no harm, just pick it up and read it. Eventually, after turning and throwing for, for some time, I picked up a Bible, and the first words that I remember reading were these, found in Proverbs 3, 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all of your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your path. And I started into a conversation with God that night, and I wasn't being a reverend. I was being as sincere as any other time in my life. And I, I says, God, are you speaking to me? Are you trying to tell me something that I'm not getting? And all I could hear God constantly say to me was, Albert, read my word. And I read, and I reread, and I reread, and I reread, I don't know how many dozen times, those two verses. And I said, God, I'm not getting this. I, I, I'm, I'm going to break it down. I'm going to stop at every word and I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask you to show me. Trust. I said, there's times, God, I've trusted you. There's been times that you've been in my life. There's been times that you, you've guided me and directed me. It's, there's something more. And as I read through those verses, I came to a little word and God stopped me where I was and he says, Albert, there it is. And I was serious. And he stopped me at a little word, all. All. Your heart. And I says, God, is this is what you're asking me? You want everything of me? You want all that I am? God said, read my word. And I read it, but I read it with a different mind. I read it with a different set of glasses on, trust in the Lord with all of your heart, need not in your own understanding, but in all of your ways, in everything that you are, and everything that you do, acknowledge him. And I got off the bed on the 13th of August, 1995, and I knelt on the floor in a dormitory, and I says, God, you can have all my heart. I haven't got time to, to go into all this and finish it. My wife came down to see me a, a week or so later. Couldn't wait to tell her this great news that I'd, I'd get saved, I'd give my life to Jesus, things were going to be different. And, and she wanted to speak, she says, I have something I need to tell you, Albert. And I said, no, Hazel, look, I need to tell you this. And she just said, look, I need to tell you something too. I said, Hazel, just shut up a minute and listen to me for a minute. I said, if I get saved, it was silence. 
My wife had become a Christian eight years previous and had prayed for me every night, every meeting that she went to. She says, pray for my husband. He, he's, he's a drunk. He's not right. And that day, I, I, I says, yes, I've got saved. I'm, I'm going to be a husband. I'm going to be a father. I'm going to do my best to put things right that I've done wrong. When I come home and she says, Albert, you're not coming home. She says, it's over. She says, the phone hasn't stopped. There's been people calling at the door saying, do you know that he was the guy who'd done that? Do you know he was involved in that? She says, I don't even know you. I don't even know you and I've been married to you for 16 years. I remember saying, hey, I'm, I'm going to prove to you this is real. And she says, if you stand on your head for 24 hours, she said, I wouldn't believe a word come out of your mouth. She says, how are you going to prove it? I says, I'm going to live for Jesus. The way she went. I have to confess, I remember thinking, trust in the Lord with all of your heart, lean not in your own understanding. In all of your ways, acknowledge him, and then your wife will come down and say, don't come home. This isn't how it's supposed to be. That's how it was. By God's grace, she did come down a, a while later and says, for the sake of the kids, we'll give it a go. I remember some months after we went out a walk uh, down by Shaw's Bridge, and we'd been married 16 years with three children, and I remember trying to hold her hand, and she near knocked me into the wagon. Don't you dare. You're not getting back in. You're home, but I don't trust you. Uh, almost a year to the very day, she told me that she still emptied the bin every night to see where the drink was. The damage that had been caused by the mistrust. And God was working. God was healing. Then I got a phone call, that same little girl that I spoke to you about, my wife phoned to say, Albert, you need to come home. Leanne has overdosed. She's in hospital. And she might die. And I thought to myself, what kind of father have you been? What kind of husband? And I went in to see her. They pumped her out and had her on different bits and pieces and I says why love why why did you do this she says dad you ruined my life and I wanted to ruin yours and I, I come out of that room and just my mind was in absolute turmoil I remember speaking to my wife sometime later and I says Hazel when when was the first time that you began to real realized that this was true, this was real. She says, the night at the hospital, she says, you come out, and I was convinced this guy's going to walk straight by me, straight into the car and go to the first bar that he can find, because that's what he does. And she says, that night, come out, and I said to you, she says, Albert, what are we going to do? And she says, I remember you said it. He said, we're going to trust God with all of our hearts. Just over a year ago, that wee girl, I hope she doesn't make me saying this if she looks at this, she walked into our church, single mother, broken relationship, violence, abuse. And she walked up 
the little lectern after I'd finished speaking and she said, Daddy, I give my life to Jesus. And what a change, what a transformation in those kids' lives. I haven't got time because I said we'd finish at 10 past, but I went back to that place, Ballyard's Castle, because God gave me another passage. That same night, the same night they told me to trust with all of my heart. And it was a passage that read this. I, the Lord God, have chosen you to build a house. Be strong and courageous and do all that the Lord has asked you to do. And that night I believe that God was saying, Albert, I want you to come back to this place and I want you to build it. I want you to manage it. I want you to build in the people's lives structures, foundations based on the word of God, based on his promises. Four years later, I gave up my job and I began to work with the Starris Foundation. And a few months later, we took over the management of Ballyard's Castle. And we had this tremendous privilege of serving God there for six or seven years, seeing hundreds of men and women, lives transformed. I thought I would be there until the day I died and then my wife took ill. We come home and we never went back. Sharing with the girls earlier on how, how we came to North Belfast, I, I made the mistake one Sunday morning sitting at the lights at, at uh, Cave Hill, Antrim Road. And I was in between things. I didn't know what God wanted me to do. I remember saying, God, wherever you want me to go, I'll go, but never, don't ever ask me to come over to North Belfast. It's a dump. That was my exact words. It's a dump. Forgive me, North Belfast folk. About three weeks later, the phone rang, and the guy says, Albert, would you ever think of going to work in North Belfast? And I was like, ah, me and my big mouth. So in 2013, we went over to Antrim Road. This is a quick version. In 2015, we closed the church. It's not the thing that many pastors do, but we, we needed a fresh start. We, we needed a, a new vision. We, we needed sort of fresh ideas on, on, on the road. And so we dissolved the church and we began from scratch. And God began to build relationships with, with the local community. Friendships that, that were meaningful. 2015, we, we began a new work called North Belfast Christian Fellowship. And the goal is to bring the word of God and the message and the healing, the power of the cross in the people's lives. No matter how far down, no matter how broken, no matter what's going on. That there's one in the person of Jesus Christ who can heal. That he said he, he came to set the prisoner free. He came to open the eyes of the blind. He came to bind up the wounds, and broken lives and marriages and addictions. And that's what he's been doing. I look back and I, I thank God for a wife who was so faithful despite what was going on. I thank God for his faithfulness, despite the many times back then and still today that I let him down and disappoint him. 
but his grace, his grace is always sufficient. His grace meets our every need. I thank God for time to, to share with you. Sorry, maybe take too much telling about, but this is what God does. The, the view that many people have of, of God and church and religion, that it's, it's starchy, it's, it's debilitating, it's, it's, it's not the God that I know. He says, it has come that we might have life and have it in abundance. Tells us that he who the Son sets free is free indeed. That is the message of the gospel. That Jesus Christ came that we might have life. When he hung on that cross, he paid every penalty for my sin and your sin. By faith alone and Christ alone this morning, we can know that forgiveness. Let's pray uh, together and then we'll read as we come to remember the Lord uh, in the way that he asked us to by taking uh, bread and, and wine together. Let's, let's pray. Father God, we give you thanks this morning that you are still in the business of transforming lives. We thank you that there is power in the blood of Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, that there is no one too far gone, there is no one too far down. That you are all sufficient. That you are all powerful. Lord, we thank you that at times we believe that it's what we do that make us enemies of God. It's it's our actions that separate us from God. But your word says, know that we were born in sin, shaping in iniquity. And yet, God, we thank you that there is hope. We thank you, Lord, the story that we read of, of the man begging outside the, the temple, outside the church. And, Lord, those, those tremendous words from Peter that silver and gold... He doesn't have. But what he does have is, is bigger and more important. That he has got Jesus. And in that name. That he was able to command that man to rise up and walk. We thank you Lord. That your word, the word of God. Says that there is salvation in no one else. It cannot be found in, in, in a church per se. It cannot be found in a religion. It cannot be found by what I, what I do or what I put into it. That there is salvation in no other. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby you must be saved. The name of Jesus. God, we pray you will take this simple story, your story, God, not, not man's boast, but, but God's love and God's grace. And God, that you may apply it to a life this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. I want to read from 